Hi, I'm April Klimkevich. And I'm Amanda McClooney, and this is Her Step Forward, where we share stories from women who step up, step out, and step forward into careers and lives they love. Our guest today is Zan Milligan, Assistant Professor in the Department of Marine and Environmental Sciences at Nova Southeastern University. After completing her PhD at the University of Glasgow in Scotland, Zan moved across the Atlantic to Florida for work, and four years later, she's still here, leading the Seascape Ecology Lab at NSU. She conducts research on deep-sea ecosystems to understand how fish use this vast environment, and how different human impacts like oil exploration, fishing, and climate change might affect them. Zan and I met rock climbing and realized we had a lot in common when we also discovered we're fans of tea time and game days. When she's not in the lab, Zan can be found behind a camera, photographing wildlife, and occasionally podcast presenters such as ourselves. (laughs) Welcome, Zan. Hello, thank you for having me. We're so glad you're here. Yeah, Zan, thank you for joining us. So to get us started for today, the first thing we'd like to know is, can you talk to us a little bit more about marine ecology and some of the important questions that you're trying to answer about our world with your work? Sure. So the area that I'm really interested in is uh, deep sea ecology. So the deep sea covers most of the earth. It covers about 75% of the planet's surface and provides the largest inhabitable living space for all organisms on the planet. But it's also an environment that we really don't know a great deal about, we're getting there. And really in the last 20, 30 years or so, uh, we've had huge advances in technology and computing power that let us really understand, um, kind of explore some of the depths of the oceans and in greater detail than we've been able to before. So it's a really exciting time to be involved in this kind of area of research. And uh, we're learning a lot about how it connects, you know, coastal uh, ecosystems from the surface ocean all the way down to the bottom. So it's pretty cool. I find this fascinating. When I was in fourth grade, we went to sea camp for a weekend and I totally wanted to be a marine biologist because (laughs) I thought that they got to snorkel all day. (laughs) But as we've become friends, I've learned a lot more about, you know, it's, it's not just dolphins and it's not just coral reefs and the work that you do with the deep sea and in the Gulf is really interesting. And so you teach, engage in research, and supervise a lab. What are some of the things that you enjoy the most about your job? Uh, To be honest, I love the variety. So I get to go to work every day and solve puzzles. And I love that. You know, I get to to go in and choose what I'm going to study for that day and and kind of really dig into some of these interesting questions. I work with really cool animals and it's all new. So trying to figure all this stuff out is really exciting. And I love that part of my job. I love the research part. The other big part of it, like you mentioned, is the teaching and mentoring. And I think that as well, I get a huge amount from. I find that incredibly rewarding to be able to, you know, teach students at undergraduate or or graduate level about the kinds of work that we're doing and about these ecosystems and why we should care about them. So all of that I find find super rewarding. And it's just really cool. It's just, it's, it's a lot of fun to do. Tell us about some of the animals. (laughs) (laughs) We love animals. (laughs) Like, Uh, what are you studying? What kind of fish are you looking at? So uh, through my PhD, I looked at fish that live on the seafloor, kind of trying to figure out where they live and um, what kinds of environments they like better than others and if there was any patterns there. And these, the fish that live on the seafloor and through the deep sea are fish that they look like fish. You know, they look kind of like cods, um, 
or the kinds of fish that you might see on reefs, you know, like like rock fishes or squirrel fishes. They they look like fish. Okay. The the kinds of fish that I'm working on now. So um, when I moved to Florida, I'm working on the open ocean systems, and what we're looking at in the water column are essentially all the sea monsters that you've seen on TV. So I have all these tiny little black fish with like huge teeth and massive eyes and silver bodies, all those things. They're they're the fishes that we're looking at just now. And they're the ones that we really know least about. So we know a reasonable amount about coastal ecosystems. We know a fair amount about stuff that lives on the seafloor. Even in the deep oceans, we, we have a decent knowledge of what's going on down there. But this stuff in the water column, in the open oceans, is far less known because it's so small and there's, they're so sparsely distributed through the water that this is really new, some of this stuff that we're doing. We're finding new species in the Gulf. It's, it's super exciting. Wow. It must be hard to find, like if you're looking for a water column in a vast ocean, it must be really hard to even find the area that you're looking to study and find the specimens that you're trying to learn more about. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's worse than a needle in a haystack. So one of the, the ways that we can look for them is using acoustics. Um, so we're working with people who use sonar and these kind of like fish finders, these kinds of technologies to, to look for where animals are distributed in the water column. We can't use video. So that's one thing when we look at fish on the seafloor, they're big enough and obviously they're at the seafloor. So we can put cameras down and we can see what goes by. But the fishes that we're working on now are just, you know, maybe the size of your thumbnail. And there's, there's millions of them. Um, the, one of the fishes that we get a lot of is something called cyclothony, and it's the most abundant vertebrate on the entire planet. And it looks like this tiny little wet noodle. Um, <laughs> and you'd never think it was, you'd never think it was an animal, to be honest, if you saw it. It's, it's, uh, it's ridiculous, but they're, they're so small. and There's such a huge distance between individual fishes. We've really got to use nets. And that's, again, something that's quite, it makes it very time consuming to go out and sample these kinds of systems. Mm-hmm. I think that's so cool, you know, because it sounds like it's not just about the science of marine ecology, but it, I imagine you guys must work a lot with technology and up and coming, you know, like devices or, or can you explain a little bit more about how you find these deep sea creatures? Yeah. So, well, the kind of old school ways of doing it are, are to use nets and just go fishing. Oh. Um, so <laughs> a lot Very of technologically things. advanced. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm painting a different picture in my head. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so these are kind of the, the older methods of, of doing surveys, you know, we used to go out only with nets and, and, and cores and dredges and that kind of thing and, and, and actually physically sample the environment. But at least on the seafloor, like I say, we can start using things like uh, remotely operated vehicles or autonomous underwater vehicles which have cameras on them and, and a whole suite of different uh, sensors, you know, so we can understand more about the environment that we're looking at and then also, you know, photograph or video the animals that live there. Uh, so that's one way of doing it. Uh, we also have things like observatory platforms at the seafloor that we can put in place and then leave them running for years. So that's another project I've been involved in is working with observatory data off Angola to look at how, you know, Seasonal changes in, in fishes um, occur, about 1,500 meters water depth. But again, that's on the seafloor, and the water column is a whole other kettle of fish. 
essentially. <laughs> and it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah, and this is where it is much harder because it's a huge environment. It's the animals are very, you know, widely distributed, like I say, and, and actually finding them and seeing them is, is really difficult. A lot of them will avoid lights. So if we, if we go down with a video, we can't see them because they avoid cameras um, or they avoid the motors or, or that kind of thing. So it's, yeah, it's certainly a challenge. And there's a lot of uh, new technologies that are being developed that we're certainly keeping an eye on and things. But yeah, for us, for just now, we're working with nets. It's old school. Mm-hmm. Wow. Are these the kind of fish that make their own light? They have like a little lamp over their head. <laughs> yeah, some of them. <laughs> Those are so cool. Yeah, it's the it's like the anglerfish from Finding Nemo. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> these are the kinds of things that we're working with. So yeah, there's 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 a whole suite of them, and they've got a whole array of different ways of of camouflaging themselves. Whether it's you know silver scales or you know just being super black to kind of hide in in the darkness of the deep water. But yeah, there's a lot of bioluminescence and fluorescence as well. So you're researching fish and it just seems really cool to know kind of what's out there. But, you know, what does that mean? Why is it so important? So one of the things that these animals do is every day they will, or a lot of them at least, every day they will migrate. Well, sorry. Okay. So every night rather, they will migrate up to the surface waters from depth where they'll feed. Um, And they do that every night at sunset. And then at dawn, they will return to the deep oceans and basically stay put for the day. And they do that to feed, to reproduce, and also to avoid predators during the daytime because the surface waters are essentially dangerous. And it's where you get a lot of things that will eat them, basically. But what this means is that all those animals that come up to the surface, they feed on organisms in the surface water that come from the surface ocean food web, which is based on on carbon produced at the surface. This is essentially really important for for carbon sequestration. So in the context of global warming, we have phytoplankton in the surface ocean that take up carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, and they grow, and then they're eaten by microscopic animals called zooplankton. And then these are the things that are eaten by deep-sea fishes and other organisms. So when that carbon essentially is eaten by the deep sea fish and taken back down to depth, it can stay there. So it's a really important way, uh, we think at least, um, for carbon to be transferred out of the atmosphere essentially into deep water. And once it's in deep water, it should stay there for Mm. up to a thousand years. Um, So if we understand where these fish are and where these other organisms are that are contributing to this process of carbon sequestration, then we can understand better how things might change in the future, what we might want to do about managing open ocean systems and essentially what kinds of impacts this could have on global climate change. Because these are organisms that are hugely abundant and they're everywhere in the global ocean. So understanding what they're doing and what drives them is going to help us understand what's going on on a global scale with climate fascinating. That's really incredible. I had no idea your work was just so, wow. Cool, huh? Well, Zan, I am really impressed with the importance of your work and the the depth and the breadth of everything that you're working on. It's a little more than April and I thought with, you know, snorkeling and dolphins. (laughs) (laughs) So on another note, 
I know you and your husband moved halfway across the world so that you could pursue this career that you love so much and that you studied and worked so hard to achieve your PhD in. And what was it like to make that decision? I mean, I, I can't imagine that you took it lightly to consider making the move to Florida from Scotland. Sure. Yeah, it was it was it was kind of difficult. You know, so I, I grew up in Scotland. I grew up in Glasgow. Um, I went to school there. I went to university there. I was at the University of Glasgow for, I think, 13 years. Like I did my undergraduate and master's and everything there. So when I finished the PhD, I had to go somewhere else, essentially. It was, it was, it was time to move on anyway. So this postdoc came up in Florida, which was to work at Nova Southeastern and do research looking at the, these open ocean fishes. And it just was such a good fit for me at that time that, you know, I was really excited about it and stuff. So that kind of made it easier. It was one of those jobs that you see it on paper and it was like, it was written for me. So that in terms of, in terms of taking the job, that was kind of an easy decision. I really wanted to do it, but I'm not going to lie. Florida is not a place that I'd ever considered moving to um, (laughs) at all. You know, it wasn't top of our list and, you know, obviously it meant that Kev had to move with me as well and uh, leave his job and things and all our friends and family are there and yeah, it was a big move I'm glad we did it it was it was easier at the time because the job originally was just for two years and we figured fine we can do anything for two years we hate it we'll just go back but we didn't it's great here and now we're kind of three and a half years in and looking to stay a little bit longer that's awesome and we're so glad that you enjoy it here <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, one of the reasons we're really happy you like it here in South Florida is because you take pictures of us. <laughs> so photography is a hobby that you've been involved with for a long time, and you've taken photos for the podcast website, which we love. Can you tell us a little bit about how photography fits into your life? Because you normally don't do portraits. No, uh, so wildlife photography is kind of where I started, and um it's just one of those things. It's always something I've been interested in, kind of enjoyed doing just for fun. And then I started working on a fishing boat in Scotland in really rough seas. And it turned out that that was that photography was essentially the only hobby I could do to pass the time that didn't make me incredibly seasick. Mm-hmm. So it kind of stuck from there. I just you know started taking photographs of birds and things that were following the boats and occasional dolphins or whatever. And yeah, I just really enjoyed it. Um, Scotland's a phenomenal place for wildlife and the, you know, the coasts and everything around Scotland is, is, is beautiful. Um, and it's, there's so many subjects and things that you can go out and photograph. It's, it's really a fantastic place to do it. So yeah, that's kind of where it all started on a fishing boat. And then I just really enjoy it. It gets me out in the wild and I find it very calming to be out there, um, with a camera, just you know, watching a bird poke about on a beach or deer in the hills. Well, we're also so glad that you were willing to venture outside of your wildlife photography and, <laughs> and spend some time taking pictures for us and for our website. So we we think that you're great at both. And it's pretty cool that you can make that switch from from, you know, the outdoorsy shots to us and making us look human in our photos. <laughs> wild birds to these two wild girls. At least you guys stood still. <laughs> well, you're welcome. 
And if um, if people want to look at some of your photos from your adventures in Scotland, they can see those at Wild Ocean Photography, right? Yep, wildoceanphotography.com. Cool. Roseanne, speaking of spending time outdoors, I know that's something that a lot of our guests have mentioned that they do in order to stay grounded. Can you talk to us a bit more about some of the things that help you stay balanced and, and grounded in your busy life? Sure. Yoga is one of them. That is something I picked up in Florida because April made me. <laughs> <laughs> but I really enjoy that. That's, you know, it, it's great. Um, we do that in the outside in the park and stuff. I really enjoy that. And it's great for kind of unwinding after a day spent sitting in front of a desk, which is what I do most of my time. So yeah, there's that. Photography and things when I can get out with a camera and do that is also great. And yeah, D&D is the other thing that probably is where I put a lot of my energy. So yeah, just some um, games and stuff with friends. Yeah, that's really fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that making time for the social connection is just as important as, you know, maybe having some time alone outdoors. So I can certainly understand why that would be an important part of finding balance outside of just work time. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's one of those jobs that's so easy just to get into. Like, I love what I do and it makes it really easy just to do it all the time. But that way madness lies. So um, <laughs> taking breaks and things is obviously really important and having things that you can kind of just focus on outside of that is is really helpful and also super fun. So yeah, D&D is a super fun way to immerse yourself in a completely different world. Yeah. Well, as we begin to wind up this episode, we would love to know from you, Zan, what your best piece of advice for women looking to take their next step forward is. Yeah, I don't know if I have a huge amount of advice to give, but I think for me anyway, it's, you know, be patient. I think the things that are worth doing are things that are worth taking your time with. Everything will kind of have its time but good things are worth taking your time with. I like that. I think that's kind of similar to something that April has mentioned before about, you know, just because something doesn't fall in your lap doesn't mean that you're moving in the right direction or that you should give up. I think patience and persistence are are certainly some important virtues to remember. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think I think so much you know, you kind of need to sit with a lot of ideas and, and things sometimes just to kind of really understand what's going on with them. Well, I think also to your point about patience is that you probably appreciate things more when it when it takes a little more work and perseverance to achieve them. So I like that. With that, we want to say thank you to everyone for joining us today. And thank you, Zan, for taking the time to share your story with us. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. We loved it. As always, we're looking forward to sharing more stories soon. In the meantime, check out our website at herstepforward.com or follow us on Instagram at herstepforward for all the latest updates. If you'd like to reach out to us, shoot us a message on Instagram or email us at info at herstepforward.com. See you next time.